morning. Six years to go, six years ago today was uh, the date of our pastor's ordination. How about that? That's gone so quick, hasn't it? We're going to read this morning from Matthew chapter 5, just a fairly short reading, reading from verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love me, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is his word. Thanks, Nigel. Well, the first thing I need to do now is release the children to children's ministry. Erin, the kids, creche. If you're visiting with us today, we have a creche for children under three, for children three and over. really great to be with you all. Um, again, just a very warm welcome if you're joining us for the first time. And if that's the case, we're currently in a series uh, called The Message of Jesus. As Louise said last Sunday, you can tell what's important to a person by the things that they talk about. And so we're particularly taking this term uh, to consider some of the things that Jesus said. These things are really important to him and therefore they should be important to us. And today we arrive at this very distinctive Christian teaching of enemy love, of learning to love your enemy. In fact, it's one of the most distinct teachings of the Christian faith. Um, and it was very distinct to the early church. Uh, firstly, Jesus himself not only taught to love one's enemy, but he indeed modelled it. Most profoundly, Jesus modelled this on the cross uh, when we see him saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. But in fact, Jesus demonstrated love for enemy right throughout his entire life and ministry. When we hear the word enemy, we immediately think of somebody who may have vengeance towards us. But in the original context, the enemy was, to, to start with, as we will see, the other. So any other person who is not part of my tribe who is not my neighbour, so to speak, is in fact an enemy. Uh, and Jesus, what Jesus does through his life is demonstrate that God's love is available to all people. So Jesus treated the sinner, the, the Gentile, the Samaritan, the Roman, all the same. And so we see um, the love for the other demonstrated and modelled through the life of Christ. We see in Acts 7, 60, as Stephen, um, the first Christian martyr, is being stoned to death, he follows in the footsteps of his Lord and Saviour by crying out that God would forgive those who have oppressed and, in fact, murdered him. And this, of course, became a pattern for the early church. And to this day, uh, even as um, recent as the Easter Sunday bombings in Sri Lanka, where over 250 Christians lost their lives, if you go and read some of the articles around that, you will find traces of enemy love. 
where Christians have chosen not to respond in vengeance and hatred, but to actually respond in love. Now, when we think about this phrase, hate your enemy, it's a very abrasive phrase, isn't it? And even the word hate is a very strong word to use, as is the word enemy. Now, there are certainly people, maybe in this room, but perhaps in, in other countries, in other experiences, as I've just, note, as I've just noted, um, where people are experiencing terrorism. Um, there are people who do have real, genuine enemies, and there are people um, who feel a great sense of hatred toward others. As I've come to this text this week, one of the things that I've, I've struggled with is this whole idea of hate. Firstly, as I examine my life, I can't genuinely think of anyone that I hate or have hatred towards. I'm not sure about you. And the same goes with enemy. I, I can't particularly picture anyone in my mind who I would consider an enemy. So for me to preach this text, I think, well, how do I actually have some integrity here? How can I preach to people about loving your enemy or when I don't particularly have anyone who I consider to be my enemy and I don't particularly feel as though I have hatred in my heart. Well, it comes back to what I was mentioning earlier. You see, when we'll find out, but the original context here, yes, absolutely, for those who are persecuting you, but it is also including love for people who have different views, who hold different values, who have different beliefs, who practice different lifestyles. And then those who persecute you for the views, values and beliefs and lifestyle that you have, the call is to love such people. And all of a sudden we now find ourselves on a level playing field where there is application for all of us. Are there people in your world, in your life, who have different views, different beliefs, who practice different lifestyles to you? Yes. Do you struggle at times with those people? Do you ever feel persecuted or shamed from those people? Maybe you do. Well, the message this morning to us is to love those people. Well, firstly, I guess the two questions that I want to spend some time considering is why should we do this? And then more importantly, how? <laughs> because we can have all the head knowledge in the world that, yes, I need to love this person, but that can be really, really hard. And I just want to pause and take a moment because I'm mindful that in a room full of people, there are going to be some here this morning who've experienced horrific abuses in their lives. And you actually have a person in your mind as I'm speaking right now. And I pray that God would do a work in your heart this morning. But I just want to acknowledge that you are welcome here and pray that God in His goodness and by His Spirit would bring comfort and healing to you, but also help you find a way to move forward. It's important for us to understand the context of today's passage. We're not just extracting a random command. It does have a context and it makes a lot more sense when we understand where it is and why it is where it is. So this teaching forms part of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. It's a little bit like his inauguration speech. Jesus has chosen his 12 disciples 
and he's talking about the, the values of the kingdom, what it means to be a follower of God. And the Sermon on the Mount is, in a sense, kind of broken into these two areas. Firstly, where Jesus is addressing the character of a Christian, and he does that firstly by um, speaking of the eight Beatitudes, which we looked at several weeks ago, and he finishes that by talking about being salt and light. So Christians are to be totally upside-down people in terms of the values that they choose to adopt and follow, and we are called to be salt and light. And then the rest of the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is kind of concerned with the conduct, the outward behavior. So he begins with who we're to be, and then he follows on from there with the kinds of things that we are to do. Jesus always begins with the inner person before he concentrates on the outer person. Does that make sense? Because what's happening inside is going to affect what happens outside. And just in between, okay, this kind of segmentation of character and then conduct, there's this small few verses on the fulfillment of the law where Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So it's really important for us, first and foremost, to keep in mind that Jesus himself says right at the outset that he has come to fulfill the law. Now, it's important for us to also understand the Old Testament law. I found this really fascinating this week, that there are kind of three categories to the Old Testament law. Firstly, there's the ceremonial law. And the ceremonial law is all the, if you like, rules and regulations that people need to to abide by when it comes to approaching God. So these are all, this, a lot of this is kind of taken up in um, part of Exodus and majority of Leviticus, and it's very much around the rules for the priests, for the temple, for all the different animal sacrifices required for various sins. These are ceremonial laws, and they all relate to effectively accessing God. Now, we know that Jesus actually abolishes all of this when he dies on the cross and the curtain in the temple is torn in two, and all of a sudden people have immediate access to God through the person of Jesus. They no longer need the temple and the priest and all the various sacrifices. The second category of Old Testament law is what's called civil law. And this was given to the people of Israel who were, it was originally God's intention that they would function under what's called a theocracy. And a theocracy is where the divine being, God himself, is effectively the king of the people and that kingship is exercised through the priests. Um, so in this, in this society, um, the priests are actually the ones who oversee the civil law. And the civil law is effectively concerned with the domestic kind of national life of Israel. And it's concerned with things like home and family life, crime and punishment, and so forth. And these civil law rules were never extended, to, never, it was never the expectation that these laws were to have universal application, but they were very much for the Israelites, for the people of God. Does that make sense? Not expected for other people outside the people of God to uphold the civil law under the theocracy. Finally, there is the moral law. Now, the moral law is indeed kind of the standard for all people for all time. And the moral law is effectively what we know as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments apply that when Jesus died on the cross, uh, the Ten Commandments didn't stop 
and they weren't abolished. And uh, the Ten Commandments have application for all people everywhere, not just people who follow God. And when Jesus is actually speaking about the law in the Sermon on the Mount, because what he's about to do is he actually reframes the law through a Christian lens, if you will, through the lens of Jesus, when he has become the fulfillment. But he's referring to the moral law. He is not referring to the ceremonial or the civil law. I'm sorry if I'm boring you, but it's really helpful and it'll make more sense for us as we travel through. And just at that final section on fulfillment of the law, Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were those who gave instruction to the, to the people of God about all of those various laws that we have just spoken about. But they added a whole bunch of extra laws to the existing laws to try and prevent you from breaking the existing, from the, the current laws. So there were so many laws. So all of that is to say that the Pharisees were um, these kind of very sort of pious, supposedly righteous people. And Jesus is saying, unless you surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Now, this would be very distressing news for a person in its original context. And what we need to understand, and Jesus is going to start demonstrating this now, is that the Pharisees were concerned entirely with the external. They were concerned with the conduct, not the character. Jesus is all about the character. If we get the character right, the conduct will follow. So what Jesus is wanting to say is, in fact, if you are someone who focuses first on the character and understand the heart behind the law itself, then your righteousness will, in fact, surpass that of the Pharisee and the scribe. Then Jesus begins what are known as the six antithesis. And um, each of these begin with this phrase, you have heard, it was said. And when Jesus says, you have heard, it was said, he is referring to the righteousness of the Pharisees. So this is what you must uphold to, um, to be righteous in the eyes of the Pharisee. And these six antithesis, these like polar opposites, if you will, or these examples of external versus internal. There's murder and anger. So murder is the outward expression of something that begins in a person's heart. Just as adultery is the outward expression of lust that begins in a person's heart. And Jesus is going to address the heart, okay? But the Pharisees are all concerned about the external practice. If you don't murder someone, if you don't have adultery with someone, then you're righteous in God's eyes. But God's actually gone and Jesus is going to take it to a whole new level, isn't he? And so the other um, four follow. And today, of course, we're looking at love and hate. It's that whole internal, external battle. So you have heard that it was said. Please note that Jesus doesn't say here, you have read in Scripture. He is quoting a statement. Now, part of this statement is correct. Love your neighbour is correct. That comes from Leviticus 19. And hate your enemy. And that there is no Old Testament sort of grounding for hate your enemy. You won't find it anywhere in the Old Testament. The verse from Leviticus 19, 18 says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour 
as yourself. I am the Lord. So here is the original law of learning to love your neighbor. Notice how it says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Now, these were, this was a law that was given for the Israelites, for the people of God. And so your people means the Israelites and the people of God. And so to hate your enemy is, in a sense, a, mis, um, a misconception of what the original intent of this law was. This law was about loving your neighbour. It wasn't about hating your enemy. But you can understand how they arrived at that conclusion. Because if I'm to love my neighbour, and in the Psalms it will speak about God hating evil, and if my enemy does evil, well then of course God hates evil, therefore he hates the enemy, therefore I should hate my enemy. So you can understand how they arrived at such a statement as this one. But it doesn't actually have biblical grounding in terms of hating one's enemy. But I tell you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is a profound teaching. For those of us like myself who've been in church their whole life, it's very easy to kind of just go, yep, that's what the Bible says, that's what we're to do. But for someone who hasn't grown up in that context, it just does not make sense at all, does it? To love your enemy and to pray for somebody who brings harm into your life, who is actively seeking to persecute you. This is without question one of the hardest teachings of Jesus. What is it about prayer? It's interesting, isn't it? We are to respond to persecution with prayer. And as I think about this, I think, wow, this is, on one hand, such a hard thing that Jesus is asking us to do. But on the other hand, it's such a beautiful thing. Because when we pray, what we are effectively doing is we are saying to God, God, whatever this situation or this person is, it's too much for me. Like, you know, if, if you could just figure it out yourself, you probably would, right? So when we pray, particularly in these very difficult situations, what we're doing is we're saying, God, I don't have the resource. I am not capable, but you are. And so in a sense, what we're doing is we're actually releasing, we're releasing this particular situation, this struggle, this person to God. And in a sense, that internally diffuses our own sense of um, anger and, 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 and frustration by, by releasing it to God. We're, we're handing it to Him. And we're, we are humbling ourselves in His sight, recognizing that I can't, I can't deal with this myself, God. I need you to. So it diffuses that emotional plug, in a sense, and, and just releases that and allows us to trust in God. But there's something else that prayer does. You cannot pray for someone and not have God soften your heart towards them. I've done it myself. I know firsthand, when you pray for somebody, it changes the way you view them. Because all of a sudden, you start to view them as someone who God knows. And God hears about them. And God actually cares about them. And it's a very hard thing to do. But Jesus, in his wisdom, knows what we need to do in these situations. And Jesus says, when you are met 
with persecution, you repay that persecution with prayer and you leave this situation in my hands. Now, we are to pray and in doing so, we are, in fact, living out what it is to be children of our Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is going to give us a few different examples as to why it's a really good idea for us to love our enemy and for us to pray. And the first thing is that this is all about family likeness. Um, We recently had some family photos taken and frequently people will say to me, gee, there's no doubting whose father those boys is, is there? And, you know, people will often say that to me as I grow up. Gee, you look a lot like your dad. The, the small genes are very strong. And, um, but, you know, this whole idea of family likeness is that if God is our heavenly father, and the, the Bible uses familial language all the time, if God is our heavenly father and we are his children then whenever we behave in ways that God behaves, we are reflecting the likeness of the family to which we belong. We are in the family of God. And the family of God is a family of love. God is love. And so when we choose to love, we actually choose to behave as those who are part of God's family. He then, this is a a theological term is called common grace. God does not discriminate against those who follow him and those who do not. He sends his, the sun is for everybody, not just for those who follow God, as is the rain. God's rain and God's sun are for all people. And this is an example of the goodness of God being available to everyone. That God loves all people. He doesn't just love and favor those who are his, who have put their trust in him, but in fact, he loves all people and As 1 Peter tells us, it is his desire that all would come to repentance and faith and trust in him. So God does not discriminate. And therefore, as his children, as his followers, neither should we. He gives a third example. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not, Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. What Jesus is pointing to here is the natural order of relationships. And humanly speaking, the natural way that we tend to want to relate to one another is to show love to those who show love to us and to basically spend time with people who are like us and who are affirming and nice to us and to avoid as much conflict as possible by not really having anything to do with people who are different to us and not certainly not repaying them with kindness and love, but in fact repaying them eye for an eye. Uh, but Jesus says, no, this is, this is, if you do this, then you're no different from anybody else. And the other thing too is that when we actually behave differently and we choose to go against the natural grain of relationships, which is to show love to those who love us uh, exclusively. When we choose to go against that and, in fact, love people who dislike us or mistreat us, it's an incredible witness to the love of God working in and through his people. And finally, 
Jesus sums up, and this summary is not just for this particular statement, but for all of those antithesis statements. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can we achieve perfection? Of course not. But it is absolutely something to strive towards, not as a way of earning our salvation, but a way of reflecting the master who we, who we follow. Jesus is the only one who is perfect. And this is very similar to uh, in Leviticus and in First Peter, where the command is to be holy, for I am holy. We will never be perfectly holy. We will never be perfectly loving. But we follow a God who is. And therefore, it is good for us, firstly, to recognize that in Jesus, Jesus perfectly fulfills the law. And so our trust for our salvation is in him. But as followers of Jesus, as those who are members of God's family, it is absolutely good for us to do our absolute best to follow in the footsteps of our loving Saviour who chose to love the enemy. We're to love, in other words, perfectly, as God loves perfectly. I love this quote from Corey Ten Boom. We must mirror God's love in the midst of a world full of hatred. We are the mirrors of God's love, so we may, may show Jesus by our lives. God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen to reveal his love to this world, which is so full of hatred, through the lives of ordinary people like you and I. When we choose to repay persecution with prayer, we mirror God's love. When we choose to show love in the face of hatred, we mirror God's love and heighten the chance of people encountering Christ for themselves. The story of Corey Ten Boom is absolutely inspiring. I have no doubt that some of you will have heard it before. Her family had all died in the Nazi concentration camps. Their crime was hiding Jews in their home. Somehow, Corey survived, and the war had ended, and the camps had been liberated. And Corey had a ministry of going around, speaking in various churches, sharing about God's love and faithfulness in the midst of the greatest horror known to mankind. And I want to read with you um, a quote out of Corey's book called The Hiding Place. She says, it was a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a grey overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched beneath, between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the centre of the floor, the shame of walking past this, naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were, she thought. This man had been a guard at Ravensbruck concentration camp. You mentioned Ravensbruck in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard in there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time... He went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. His hand came out 
Will you forgive me? The man asked Corey. And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out to me. But it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the heart's temperature. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. As I took his hand the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges on, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. That answers the how question. We can't love our enemy in our own strength. We can only do that in God's. And we are his children. Therefore, we have his strength because his spirit lives within us. You know, it's important for us to remember that there was a time when we were God's enemies. We need to point this question at ourselves. We read in Romans 5.10, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? For you and I, to truly learn what it is to love our enemies, we must first receive God's love and that he loved us while we we're living in rebellion towards him as his enemies. And for us to genuinely love our enemies, we have to lay down our weapons of defense and attack and pick up our cross and follow in the footsteps of our teacher, our Messiah, who went to the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Let me lead us in a time of prayer now. Lord Jesus, we just pause now. There's a lot of information there to process. 
What we're hearing this morning, Lord, first and foremost, is that your greatest concern is what's happening in our hearts. Perhaps those feelings that we harbour towards others that they may never even see or know about, but you do. To love our enemies in our hearts, that's a tall order. Lord, you invite and instruct us to be a people of prayer in the face of persecution. You invite us and you call us to a higher ground of loving those who we consider to be our enemies, your enemies. We recognise and acknowledge, Lord, that we cannot do this on our own. And that's why we thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Jesus, that while we were still enemies with God, because of your great loving sacrifice, we have been made friends with God. We have been reconciled to God. We now are God's children and his ambassadors on this earth. We're here to mirror God's incredible love to all who don't yet know it. So I pray for each person this morning, Lord. Firstly, pray that you would bring healing and restoration to those who have been so deeply hurt and wounded by another. I pray that they might find it in their heart to trust in you, to hand this situation over to you, and to find the strength and the courage to pray for that person who's caused them so much grief and so much hurt. Thank you, Lord, for your great family of love that envelopes us, that welcomes us with all of our frailties and brokenness and gives us a second chance. We love you, Lord, and it is our great desire to be your people and to represent you as best we can in this world, not for our own good or our own glory, but for your glory for your name's sake exclusively. And it's in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus that we pray this together now. Amen. I just want to conclude today's message with an important footnote, which I didn't mention during the message. And that is to say that To love our enemy is not to condone their behaviour. I'm very mindful that there are a number of us who have been wronged and hurt by others. And uh, the challenge of loving that person or those people can be an enormously difficult task. But we need to always bear in mind that God is entirely sovereign and he is a just judge. And our role is not to judge others that ultimately will be God's role. Our role is to love. And we need to remember that we were once God's enemy, but because of his great love for us, he has welcomed us and accepted us. And we need to do the same to those who wrong us. We do this not in our own strength, but in the strength and the grace of Jesus. God be with you all. Amen.